Welcome to the Betterism Podcast, a learning community seeking out life's unusual lessons from its unlikely places. I'm your host, Glenn Binger, author, teacher, and coach, and I'm here to help spark some collective growth. I hope you'll stick around and teach us a thing or two, but first, a few words from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Four Sigmatic. Four Sigmatic is a magical fungi supplement company. No, we're not talking magic mushrooms. We're talking natural organic fungi. Lion's mane, chaga, turkey tail, reshi, uh, cordyceps, you name it. They have all different kinds of products available on their website. Um, blends that will help you think, uh, blends that will help you defend and build up your immune system, um, adaptogens that will help you chill out and relieve some of the stress of day-to-day life, especially this day and age. Um, Four Sigmatic has a lot of educational content on their website as well. If you click on their learn tab up top, they actually have something called the Mushroom Academy, which is very helpful. Uh, It's where I learned about the different fungi, mushrooms, and what they do specifically. Personally, I'm a big fan of their Think Blend or their Think Coffee Grinds with Lion's Mane and Chaga. really kind of sets my brain on fire when I'm sitting down to write or record or put something together for a project I'm working on. Um, They have all kinds of products from proteins to coffee blends to uh, extracts. Um, Check them out at foursigmatic.com. That's four spelled out, F O U R. S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com. If you use the promo code BETTERISM at checkout, you can save 10% off your order. That's foursigmatic.com. All right. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Betterism Podcast. You know me. I'm your host, Glenn. Today, we have a special guest. Elizabeth Beth Splain is a writer and a spreader of love and light. Beth, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. Um, so I figured uh, you have an eclectic background when it comes to um, <laughs> writing and learning and teaching. So I figured we kind of start off talking about your books and then kind of branch off and kind of go from there, wherever the conversation leads. But um, you have two books already out and you have a book coming next year 2021 um would you care to kind of talk about i guess the one that's coming out i guess that would be a good place to start is the one that's coming out in 2021 sure yeah i actually have three books out um oh i'm sorry that's quite all right i just wanted it's even better (laughs) yeah it is even better um so the book next year that's coming out is tentatively or at least the working title is swan song of a jewish diva and um, swan song, everyone knows what a swan song is to some degree, but there's also a poem, um, a very, very old poem. And uh, it's, it's, it was made into an art song, an English art song. So it's a song that I've sung and performed and a bunch of my students have sung and performed. But Swan Song of a Jewish Diva is about um, an opera singer who rises to fame in early Nazi Germany, only to find out that she's a Mischling. She's one quarter Jewish. And um, she ends up becoming the obsession of Adolf Hitler, who was in real life an avid opera goer, avid opera goer. And she falls in love with Hitler's real life nephew, William Patrick Hitler, who was the son of 
Adolf Hitler's half-brother. So the book started as a tribute to the artists who were imprisoned in Theresienstadt or Terezin, one of mm-hmm. the um, concentration camps slash ghettos. And it ended up morphing into a love story that spans continents and decades. Um, but it is definitely, it's historical fiction and there are many, many historical figures that are woven into the book, including Willie Hitler, of whom very little has been written. So to my knowledge and research, this is going to be the first book that puts his exploits front and center. Mm. So So, historical fiction has always been a fascination of mine. I I don't necessarily write historical fiction, but I I love reading historical fiction. I know that there's a ton of research that goes into it. So Mm -hmm. something like that, where there's very little research available for a character like that, how do you go about approaching that? I mean, I guess you could start with like your overall research process, but Mm -hmm. then how do you, how do you dig into something that is so obscure in the first place? Yeah, it's funny because I had started writing the book and I was focused completely on um, a fictional opera singer um, who afterwards I realized could be based on a real opera singer who left Germany named Lada Schöne. And um, my husband and I were watching a documentary about World War II and they mentioned William Patrick Hitler, Adolf's nephew. And immediately I was like, what? Who is this? So <laughs> I went the next morning while I was normally my writing time, I ended up spending as much that entire four hour period researching him. And there are literally no books I could find on this man. So I used the internet and read everything I could read about him. He was quite amazing and infuriated Adolf Hitler. And, um, There's a famous scene, a story that Adolf used to carry a whip, a bullhide whip. And Mm -hmm. at a cocktail party, um, he brandished his whip. And Willie talks about that in a treatise he wrote, article he wrote for Look magazine in the 40s, um, which was uh, kind of the competitor with time, I guess. And um, he wrote an article called Why I Hate My Uncle. And he was living, he had gone to Germany and he came back to England. England didn't really care for him very much because of his name. He tried to enlist to fight with the Mm -hmm. allies and England said no. So he wrote this article and sent it to Look Magazine. William Randolph Hearst got his hands on it and said, why don't you come to the United States and do a, a speaking tour of why you hate your uncle? And so he ended up coming to the U.S. He ended up doing that speaking tour his mother came as well and um he ended up uh joining the navy here enlisting and going back to germany and fighting against his uncle when he was done with that he married a uh, i believe a german woman and they settled in long island and his three sons are still there (laughs) he actually had four sons one passed away um so the three sons still live there and I didn't know anything about this person. So I spent all those hours researching because I thought here is someone that was so close to the Führer and there's nothing about him. So part of it, I think, is that he, I forget the year he died, but I mean, it wasn't that long ago. And his sons, of course, 
um, have said, listen, if we're going to write our story, then we're going to write the story. No one's going to write it for us. So um, that was the reason him, um, anything I could get my hands on. And then in terms of, of general research, um, you know, I read lots of books in preparation for starting to write. After I wrote the entire manuscript for Swan Song of a Jewish Diva, um, an agent in L.A. read it and he liked it. And he said, but he said, why would Hitler be so enamored of a Jewish opera singer? I know he loved opera and he loved women, but why? He hated, you know, the Jewish population. So I don't think that would happen. That's not realistic. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that was a fair question. Um, And so that led me to read The Life and Death of Adolf Hitler, written by Robert Payne. And I could only read like 30 pages at a time because it was so, uh, it's hard to get into Hitler's head, first of all. Yeah. um, It's a terrible, terrible place to live. But I have to say, I literally, as I was reading that book, it came to me and it was so clear why he is obsessed with her because there was an event and I won't give it away, but there was an event in Hitler's Mm -hmm. life that literally was the catalyst for him turning into the amoral person that he became or monster that he became. So there were lots of things that led to it, but this of all things uh, was pivotal and um that has to do with this opera singer so uh that feedback was really important to me and it led me to just do more research as research does i'm sure you're the same way as soon as you start researching something for example in the book they get on hitler's plane so and i talk all about the plane and you know try to give enough detail to make it real but not too much to take the reader out of and my father, right, right. who who is a, a pilot, a uh, former pilot, he texted me and he said, I think they would have, at that point in time, they would have needed to use oxygen in the cabin, cabin pressurization. And I immediately wrote back and I said, well, actually, Dad, cabin pressurization came in that year. And don't you think that Hitler would have had the best plane <laughs> built? So, and he laughed and, you know, he called me, he's like, kudos to you for, for doing that. That kind of level of research is really important. There's a scene where they get on a, um, a cruise ship to come to England. They leave, they finally leave Germany. And that led to a full day of research about actual ships that left um, the harbor at the time. What was the harbor? What did the harbor look like? What did the staterooms look like? All of that matters. It matters. Yeah. So this is certainly a labor of love. This is bigger than any book I've written. And I loved every second of it. And now I'm in the process of rewriting it. A very good friend of mine, Addie Applebaum, who is um, an opera expert. She's also um, She's also a World War II kind of buff and um, Holocaust buff. She has her grandfather was involved. And so she read the book and ripped it apart in a wonderful way to say, you need to make sure you're always honoring the people who were lost. You need to make sure that your timelines are completely accurate. You right. need to, so all of those things. So now I'm rewriting it with all, I have a whole list it's called Swan Song Fixes, and it's pages long. So now I'm going back and rewriting 
with those fixes in mind. And of course, then we'll go back again. Sure. And the editor's getting their fingers on it. So yeah, it's and that's the that's the process. And you know, honestly, that's the thing that scares me about historical fiction. It's probably the reason why I've never dabbled in it myself is because of that level of research. I mean, especially with a content area that is so uh, hits so close to home for so many people. Yes. You know, yes. you you don't like you like your friend said you don't want to negate any of that. You don't want to like cause anything that's going to create a stir and uh, you know essentially draw away from the story that you're trying to tell at the same time, which is yes. that's the challenge. That's absolutely true. And, um, you know, full disclosure, I'm a white Protestant, you know, 52 year old (laughs) privileged woman. So, you know, I am literally probably the last person that should be writing this book. And I'm aware of that. But um, I became enamored of um, this just fast, not enamored. That's the wrong word. Fascinated by uh, not just World War Two, but um, it started years ago. Um, Addie Applebaum was running an opera company, the Central Pennsylvania Youth Opera Company, and uh, my middle son got involved with the company. And at the time, um, they were performing Brindabar. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's written by, I might say his name wrong, but Hans Krasa. And mm-hmm. um, he, it was performed in Czech in uh, Terezin, and the kids performed it. It was performed, I think, 40 times or 60 times. It was performed a lot. And it was performed when the International Red Cross went to Terezin to make sure that the Jews were being treated well and got the wool pulled over their eyes by the Nazis. Again, this is all in the book. So when I learned when my son was involved in that children's opera, when I learned the history of the opera, that led me, this was years ago. I mean, this was probably... 12 years ago. And so it always fascinated me the, you know, the fact that there was such an artistic community within this concentration camp. And so that just, it kind of boggled my mind. So that led to Mm. me reading a bunch of books about that particular camp and about the, the um, artistic um, events that happened in the camp. There were painters and poets and composers and the rec, um, um, Fares Requiem was performed like 60 times again for the officers, the SS officers. I mean, it's unbelievable. I think it was Fares. But anyway, it's, it's just amazing that despite the atrocity and the horrific conditions that these amazing people found within themselves the strength and the courage to perform these artistic endeavors and maybe it was not it was not in spite of it but because of it and some of the books i read talk about you know the adults and the kids saying it, that was the one joy that we looked forward to there were mm-hmm. lectures that they could attend so you know art survives no matter what it just does it may be smuggled as an anne frank's diary walled up right until someone yeah. finds it but right. it survives and it often prospers under condition, horrific, unbelievable conditions. So that to me has always been, you know, the beauty of art juxtaposed against the horror that the Holocaust was, is that in and of itself right there is the, the white and the black, the good, the evil, the dark, the light. It's all mm-hmm. there. It's just a matter of how we describe it. So 
Absolutely. And that's honestly, that's come up on the podcast uh, several times, the, the, the value and the idea of art and what it is and how it drives us. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is such a human condition and it, it can really help us thrive and, and push through some of the most extreme conditions. Yeah. And I know, you know, you're multi-talented. I mean, you've written several books prior to this. You were also a singer, a voice teacher. I mean, how, where does all that come into play too? I mean, how long have you been writing and teaching? Are those kind of like on the same line or do you kind of like, I guess, uh, jump around your artistic endeavors there? How yeah. does that work out, that timeline? Um, so I started, I knew I wanted to be a singer when I was little. And um, classical music, when I was a baby, my mom tells stories that I would cry and she was so concerned. And the, the pediatrician apparently said, I know this sounds crazy, but I think she's going to be musical. And there was no music in my family. So my mom was like, yeah, you're bananas. But <laughs> I knew what I wanted to do. And um, I started studying voice when I was 12 with a woman. This was in Wilmington, Delaware, a woman who came down from the Philadelphia Academy of Music. I was fortunate enough to be placed with her. And in my first lesson, she had me singing in French, which is still my favorite language to sing in that I studied forever because I just love it so much. But, and I was really involved in sports in my school. So I studied for a couple of years and then I kind of fell away from it. I got back into studying voice in college um, and then went straight from college to graduate school for healthcare administration. Um, music was not necessarily considered, you know, a great career choice. So I needed a backup plan. And so I got a master's in healthcare administration. I had no intention of meeting my husband, but I met my husband and (laughs) we got married. And then I worked in healthcare for 10 years and didn't sing a note. And, um, when I was about 31, I was so just, my artistic life didn't exist and it made me very sad. And my husband said, you need to sing we need to figure out a way that you sing again. Mm. We had two kids. We were both commuting ridiculous hours, working ridiculous jobs in terms of time. So um, long story short, uh, I got into the Boston. um, I started studying voice at the New England Conservatory in their extension program. And then we moved to Hershey, Pennsylvania, where I auditioned. Uh, I actually got in, well, I tried to audition for um, the local opera company, regional opera company there, Harrisburg Opera, and they wouldn't respond. They wouldn't even respond to my request. And so then I decided that I would throw, I would put on a recital. I found a voice teacher and I created a recital. I was seven months pregnant with our third son when I held a recital and I sent out invitations. I know it was crazy. It's crazy. (laughs) I look back on it. Um, I sent out invitations to everybody and their brother, including opera companies and for some reason, um, they came. And so I did the entire, are you still there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Sorry. So my screen went back. Um, I did the entire, uh, performance and afterwards this woman came up and she said, who are you? Why haven't we heard you sing? And instead of saying, well, you wouldn't respond to my you know, requests. I just smiled and said, well, I'd love to audition for you. And that was Addie Applebaum. And that's how I got involved ah. in Harrisburg Opera, where she was involved. And then she founded the Central Pennsylvania Youth Opera. So I sang with Harrisburg for a couple years. And then, uh, and then we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I sang with Grand Rapids Opera, again, a regional company. So anyway, long story short, 
Uh, I started teaching because people knew I sang and just because you sing doesn't make you a good voice teacher at all. But, um, <laughs> and I really didn't plan on teaching at all. I have no degree in music. I have no degree in pedagogy, but it worked and I, the people kept coming. And so long story short, now I work at Rhode Island Philharmonic Music School. Um, they, because I don't have a degree, but I have 15 or 16 years of performing and with successively bigger companies. So mm -hmm. clearly, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing. And so I've been teaching right. now for 16 or 17 years, I think. And, um, and I can't even tell you how much I love it. Um, my youngest student is six. My oldest student that I've ever taught is 92. And uh, in terms of writing, when we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, I didn't have a studio yet. And I had three boys, you know, 15 and younger. We had three massive dogs, 540 pounds of dog. And, <laughs> but I didn't have a job and I'm not good at not having a job. So I started writing on a parenting blog. Um, and then one day, and this is literally how it happened. I was brushing my teeth. I had gotten everybody off to school, went upstairs, brushing my teeth. My eyes were closed. The toothpaste, toothpaste cap fell on the floor without opening my eyes. I knelt down to get the toothpaste cap, seeing if I could find it and I couldn't find it. And I remember thinking, God, it would really suck to be blind and drop the toothpaste cap. And understanding that that is a ridiculous thing to say, because of course, but something as small as dropping a flipping toothpaste cap, wouldn't that drive you crazy? So I stood up and I opened my eyes and I looked at myself in the mirror and the name Julian Stryker came into my head. And I paused like, what? And, <laughs> and then he came more like, he's a psychologist. He's blind. He was blinded by one of his adolescent patients uh, and he works with the police. Well, why would he work with the police? He was so troubled by the fact that he missed the warning signs in this kid who blinded him that he goes back to school to become a profiler. And he ends up uh, the um, detective who is assigned to his personal case. He's never seen her, but they become a team. And that was my very first book. And so I went downstairs after brushing my teeth and I went to the computer and I started writing and my husband came home about seven or eight hours later and he said to me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm not sure. I think I'm writing a book. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, yeah, I really, I'm not sure. I think this is going to be a book. And so it was a book and I've never, I, I, I didn't have a dream of being an author. I didn't, I did want to be published someday just because, I don't know, it sounded cool to me, but I, did, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't really have a plan. But like so many other things in my life, uh, it's kind of either dropped in my lap or um, there's a seed there that's been, you know, planted and just needs mm -hmm. a little nurturing and then it will blossom. And that's what's happened. So that's why and how I started writing. And that was in um 2011 i think 2012 maybe okay so yeah that's fascinating you know it, it kind of ties back into the whole art thing i mean like that's mm. you know it's like the I, I know 
most artists can relate to this, but like when you have that, uh, that drive, that push, that idea mm -hmm. that just like needs to come out yep. somehow, it just, there's no stopping it, right? It's, you just, you sit down and you have to write this song or you need to, you know, write the, this chapter in this book or, or sometimes for me, it's even just, you know, taking out my journal and like writing like this bullet list outline of like what I want this story to be, yep. you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's crazy how, I shouldn't say crazy, but it's, it's wild how, uncontrollable that can feel sometimes and you know experiencing that not that I'm comparing myself to somebody who has suffered as much as somebody through the holocaust I can almost relate to how that art just happens it comes out because they need to do it you need to put it out and you need to enjoy it you know it's like this outlet that needs to come through yeah um so how does how do the two art forms tie together for you? I mean, your latest book is about, or has that element of opera and singing in there, of course, tied in with the historical fiction. How, how, how does that, how do they influence each other? Do they come together? I know the writing kind of came, you know, secondary, but yeah. obviously the two affect each other. How do they link up in your mind? Um, well, it's interesting in Swan Song of a Jewish Diva, which hopefully will be out next year. Um, Ursula is the main character and Ursula when she first meets Willie he insults her because he he says well I hate I detest the opera and what she says to him later is when you said that you were in essence saying that you detest me and he said no that's a no 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 and she said no no you need to understand art comes from the inside so when you denigrate my art mm. you are in essence den denigrating me because it's an extension of who I am. It is the painting that goes onto the canvas is born of an idea and that's translated into the brush or the, the, the watercolor or whatever. And it's the same right. way with singing, except that unless you're writing your own stuff, and this is something that always troubled me a little bit, to be honest, as, as a singer. I am also a business person. You know, I worked in healthcare for 11 years. So when I would show up at rehearsal and singers would either be late or wouldn't know their, that part of the score that needed to be memorized by that day, I was absolutely appalled because it's a business. This is a business. It may be an art form, right. but it's also a business. And if you want the business, the art to continue, you need to honor the business side. Um, so to me... But having said that, it is who you are. When I would perform an aria, the most I could do, if I were performing Handel, for example, I could learn all about Handel and I could learn all about the period in which he wrote the rules that surround the way you're supposed to sing this part of the song or that part of an aria. But the reality is there's only so many ways that you can interpret that piece. And so it always troubled me that we were the interpreters of someone else's work. And so I wanted it to be my own work, but I am not a composer. I mean, I am with the kids for fun. You know, we do songs for Christmas. Right, right. But so to create something of nothing that comes from the inside out that you spill onto the page, that is something that didn't exist before. It's a statement yes. that I was here, you know, I did something positive hopefully that is put out into the that helps people learn and maybe urges other people to find their own inner whatever it is whether it's gardening you know whether it's keeping a clean house 
I don't care what it is, as long as you're passionate about it. One of the happiest people I ever met was a garbage man that we had in, in uh, two houses ago. And this person was so passionate about his work. And I had the utmost respect, not only for what he did, because it's a tough, tough job, but that he was so happy. And that's, you know, with where I know we're going to get to Devil's Grace in the current book, but that's what it's about is mm -hmm. to me finding that inner light, whatever that is, and spilling that out and whatever that means to you, right? As the listener, or that's yeah. what it's about um, in terms of how they link. You can work on a, an aria for months before you present it to the world, but you can always improve it. There's always something you could tweak. And because your, our bodies are our instruments when we're singers, you know, how we are feeling mm -hmm. reflect, is reflected in how we present the piece. It's the same way with golf or any sport, by the way, I always make this comparison yep. too, but it's the same way with a book. You know, it's kind of, you, you create the book and then you refine it and then you refine it. At some point you have to say, okay, this is good enough that it's going to leave me <laughs> and I'm trusting you mm -hmm. the next step in the process to take this book and continue to make it good. So that artistic approach to um, creation, I think is consistent across media. I'm not a painter or, or an artist in any way, shape or form, goodness knows, but I would think it would hold to the same standard would hold there as well. Absolutely. I, you know, I, so I'm a, I'm an ice hockey oh. coach and, you know, sometimes I, and I don't really advertise that cause it's, you know, just the high school that yeah, I teach but it's at, great but that you do that. yeah. And, you know, I, I try to tie that line with, um, you know, my, my players all the time. It's like, there is an element to creativity. Uh -huh. This is like, yeah, there's uh -huh. set plays and, you know, there's rules and laws you got to mm -hmm. follow in the game. But like, you know, like Picasso says, like, you got to know the rules yeah. to break the rules. And that's really, that's really what makes you an artist, right? It's like the, the people that make it to the professionals are the ones that kind of had that yep. drive yep. and that passion. And they applied 110% of their physical limitations to reach that goal. But at the same time, you know, they're, creating their own reality That's right correct. they're they're inventing their own yep. style right they're controlling the puck or passing the puck or scoring the goal in their own way and that's what makes them stand out right and again like you said that that ties across many many different forms of media whether it's a, a Absolutely, sport yeah. you know or a, a digital media whatever it is it it goes across all of those realms and i think you know just because there's not a physical Mm -hmm. product that mm -hmm. comes after that does not mean that it's not creative. Uh, you know, it's an excellent point. It's interesting because I played uh, lacrosse all through college and mm -hmm. I, I literally had never considered that before. And if I had, how would I have coached differently? I only coached for a year, um, but it's an excellent point. And um, I would add to that, of course, the 10,000 hours, right. That we all have to apply to the craft. Yeah. But also mm -hmm. the, you know, that the question, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? So we, we all grow yeah. up hopefully with good parenting and support systems that say helpful things like you can do anything you set your mind to, you know, oh, you're going to be a star and all that. Stuff. Right. But what makes someone really believe that and not believe that this is the thing that fascinates me. What makes someone who grows up with no role models to speak of 
what makes him or her break out of the cycle? What is it in someone? And this is something that I, I, I've been thinking and thinking and thinking about this and it keeps coming up. So I think it's going to end up being a book, but what makes someone <laughs> break the cycle? And um, I don't have the answer to that, but certainly part of it is believing that you were meant to do something else and, or truly believing that you can do it. And I heard that growing up, you can yes. do anything you want, but I really didn't understand it until maybe five years ago. When all of a sudden I was like, oh, I really can do anything. I really could learn calculus if I wanted to. I don't want to, but I could, right? I might need tutoring, <laughs> but I could do it. Right. So what would we do? And that's another part of the light. It's finding what is it in you that makes you shine? One, what do you enjoy? And two, what is it going to take for you to shine, right? That is fascinating yeah. to me. Absolutely fascinating. And to your point about coaching, I'm sure you're a fantastic coach because that was brilliant, what you said. Well, that's what, you know, so, I mean, first of all, I, I personally, I think the best way to learn something is to try to turn yeah, around oh, and teach no it, question. right? Like I've, I've, I've always, I've played hockey since I was a little kid. Um, that was just happened to be the sport that my parents introduced me to and the one that kind of stuck, you know, I've always been athletic and we've done my, my brother and I have always played different sports growing up, but ice hockey was the one that stuck with me. But that idea, that concept of like teaching something to truly learn something stuck with me. Right. And I, I guess that's really what brought me to teaching English. You know, it's like, I, I love to read and write and I wanted to share those skills and also get better at them. But to, to your point about you know, spreading and, and sharing that light, it's, it's absolutely fascinating because everyone has that light within them. I don't know if everyone is capable of expressing that they have it or even recognizing that they have it, but it's, it's strange. Like you see across the spectrum of all industry, all art, you know, the people that stand out are the ones that are following yep. that light and then trying to share that Absolutely. light right and it's like you said like some people you know they just stumble upon it and then others learn how to manifest it and and control it and kind of help it grow and nourish and then there are others who are able to do that with yep. other people like able to kind of cultivate that light within other human beings which is utterly well, fascinating that is i mean and that's what you're doing yeah. Glenn, and that's what i hope i'm doing in teaching voice you know Teaching voice to me, I, I just had this conversation with a student of mine who's a therapist. And, you know, I said, everyone in the world should study voice if they want to. And because the question I get all the time when people find out what I do, they're like, can anybody learn to sing? And my answer is absolutely. And then I usually follow, follow it up with maybe not well, but, <laughs> but they can learn to sing. <laughs> and everybody should. By God, if you want to come into my studio, then you are welcome. Because what comes out from singing, first of all, endorphins are released. There's a reason that we sing when we're happy, right? Yep. And vice versa. You know, we're happy mm -hmm. when we sing and we sing makes us happy. But there's a reason that yep. people sing when they're happy. And the confidence, that's the part. I'm sure you see this too as a coach. The confidence that people mm -hmm. gain from feeling good about something that is coming out of them is it's untouchable. Like to me, when I yeah. see that, when I see yeah. a student master something, even if it's for one second, it's a, 
I recorded a CD when I was 31, the very first thing I did in trying to get back into music because I didn't know what else to do. It's a long story. Anyway, um, <clears throat> when I listened to the tracks a couple years later, because I really hadn't studied in 10 years, so, you know, they weren't perfect. And there was literally, literally one note that was perfect. One note out of, I think, eight or 10 songs. And I can't even tell you how <laughs> proud I was of that note. But because, and this is the story I tell to my students, if there's one note that's good, it means there can be a phrase that's good. And if there's a phrase that's good, mm. it means there can be a stanza that's good, et cetera, et cetera. So it starts with mm -hmm. one positive thing that leads to another positive thing. And that's what coaching is all about, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Such a gift. Absolutely. So how did, I know I kind of wanted to, bring this back a little bit what was that shift like coming from the I, I don't have a better word for this but I guess the the industry side back into the creative artistic side of of your your business or your professional life like how that transition in your 30s is not easy to do you mean what was that like for you from healthcare into teaching voice and or writing? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it kind of was a, a multi-step process. So I worked in uh, Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. I worked in Lynn uh, Community Health Center. Then I worked in, um, in in Boston and then I left there and I ended up joining a okay. kind of the business. I became the business side of this, this aerospace company. They were a CAD design company and they were, talking about going, um, going public, uh, doing an IPO or something like that. Um, and I also worked with a startup company. There was a physician and, um, a computer scientist and me, and I was the business side and we built the company up, um, to, I don't know, 24 people. And then it was sold to Aetna healthcare in New York. Um, and then I left there to go mm -hmm. to this CAD design company. And then we moved to Hershey. Pennsylvania. And, um, I, <laughs> I wasn't working and the CFO of the health center who was an, she's an amazing woman, Mary Bednar. She approached me again. I wasn't looking and she approached me and she asked if I would come in as a consultant to work with physicians who had good, who thought they had good business ideas, but to basically help them write business plans. So I did that. And I then see. that while I was doing that, I was trying to audition and get, you know, and get seen by opera companies. And that's when I ended up putting on my own recital. So I ended up doing both right. for a while. In fact, I, no one's asked me this. It's, it's a good question. I distinctly remember I had the 300 ish page score to Carmen in French um, at a Boy Scout camp where my son was. And I was one of and and while all the men were playing poker, I was in the corner with my score highlighting my lines. And so there <laughs> and I would sit in meetings like before I went in to talk to a physician, I brought my score everywhere because I was working full time. I mean, there was nothing I could right. do, but plus I already had two kids. Yeah. So uh, that that was a hard yeah. time. And um, what I learned is that um, it's hard to sing a full opera when you're flipping tired, man. It's, it, it's really, <laughs> it's hard. And so yeah. um, I only yeah. did, I mean, I played Carmen and I played um, Delilah 
Now, this was a small company. It's not like it was a big company. So I wouldn't have gotten those roles, obviously, right. in a larger company. But it didn't matter to me whether there were four people in the audience or 4,000 people in the audience. There were people in the audience. And by God, you right. better put on a good show. So I was exhausted all the time. Um, in terms of the writing, the writing came when my kids were 15, 12, and 6. So... Yeah, the writing older. Was, yeah. now it's so funny I'll be writing and I'll realize I haven't woken up my youngest son who's 16 I'm like oh my god I hope he's up and he is he's fine. But, <laughs> so I don't know that I could have done it I hear stories about people uh, parents who have three kids and write from like three to five in the morning before I don't know that I would have been able to do that because I just physically I don't think I could have done it plus singing required that again, your body is your instrument. You have to be, you can't be fatigued mm -hmm. when you're so, you know, I think that as I slowly retired from the opera stage, writing took more of a focus in my life. And it's another, to your point, artistic expression. So I don't perform mm -hmm. anymore. If one of my students wants to do something together, I will absolutely no question do that. But otherwise, because everyone's like, oh, you should audition for this. And then not interested. I'm expressing myself. Every <laughs> scene I write in a book is on a stage in my mind. I literally, I write it from the inside mm -hmm. out. I am that character. Doesn't matter how old they are, what sex they are. Um, so these are all meant to be on a stage or a um, set one day. That's the goal. I see. And it's also like following that light again. I mean, that's what, you know, like the, that transition in the story you just shared. I mean, that to me, it sounds like the the light was there and it was, you know, it was faint in the beginning, but you kind it kind of like called to you and you kind of kept following it and it kept presenting you with more shimmer and more glimmer and another step here and another step there. And I think, you know, that's that's the big picture that often gets forgotten when it comes to mm -hmm. artists and creatives, um, you know, especially this day and age where the, the, the immediate turnaround is kind of like expected, but in art, that's very rarely the case, especially if you're trying to make it mm -hmm. financially as an artist like that, that rarely, yeah. rarely, rarely ever happens. It's, it's about plugging away and it's about following that light and taking those little tiny signs. And little when they tiny do pop steps, up. you know, like, in a business plan, there are goals and there are objectives that lead to the goals, right? So I'm a very right. um, progressive, I try to be logical, but you know, I'm a very goal oriented stepwise person. That's kind of how I think. So like when I started singing, when I was 31, my goal was to sing with an orchestra, which was a great goal initially, mm. because up till then I had only done piano, right? I had never sung with a full orchestra. So the day I sang mm -hmm. with the full orchestra, I was like, look at me, look, you know, good for you. Okay, next. Right. So I kept, and there's so many yeah. similarities between um, the business of opera and the business of writing. When I first started writing, a lot of the questions I got were from potential publishers or, or whatever, you know, are you sure you're up for this? Right. Are you sure you're in this for the long haul? Are you sure that you can handle the rejection? And I, I literally would burst out laughing. I'm like, okay, let me set a stage for you, my friend. You are standing, um, <laughs> you've prepared five songs. You go in, there is a, there are 10 people seated in front of you, all of whom are looking you up and down, judging your physical appearance. Then um, 
you start singing and they start writing. So they're literally writing what they think of you in front of you. Um, you've prepared five songs, but you don't know what you're going to sing. They choose. And you've, so, and then if you're lucky, if you get one out of 10, one out of 10 auditions, you get the part. Are you kidding me? I, bring it on with the right. I, rejection, <laughs> not a problem. <laughs> right so yep and uh as an artist i mean you know you gotta have you gotta have thick skin because those like your rejection letters they're gonna come through and they're not gonna go right. easy and so here's the, here's the question and that is um sorry my dog was there um the question is okay. how do you like sometimes you want to listen to that rejection sometimes you want to what can you learn from that right at mm-hmm. what point do you say maybe they have a grain of reason in their thought process, these rejectors? And so maybe I need to rethink this, which to me, yes, it's a rejection, but it's also an opportunity to perhaps change the way you've been doing things that will in the end make you yes. better. So you have to balance that your fragile ego with rejection, with taking that and because it's isn't it so easy to to dig your heels in and say i'm not changing it it's my article it's my book it's my right but at the same time again it's just like singing when i used to perform like if i were doing a recital or whatever i would want to pick some obscure aria that's a real challenge to sing or spoke to my soul my personal soul and my husband would always say no 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 sing something from carmen Everybody knows that. And I said, oh, my Lord, if I have to sing that one more time. But he was right, because if you're going to get people interested in what you do, you need to draw them in. So my last voice teacher said to me, Beth, when you stop singing for other people, you will truly shine. So I I got these like mixed messages. Right. And the answer is who's right. The answer is they're both right. I figured out. I have to be aware of my audience, whether that is a writing audience or a singing audience, but I also need to be true to myself. Meeting those two goals Mm -hmm. is not always easy or even perhaps doable. But if I have worked to that end, then I'm successful. Yep. And that's like you said, that is certainly not easy to do is having that self, that self-critical or self-analytical mm-hmm. lens of knowing when to listen to the feedback, right? Because sometimes the feedback yep. is BS and sometimes it's authentic and it, it will truly help the craft. But as the artist, it's up to you to, number one, recognize that, but number two, also exactly. make that decision, right? I mean, it, there's, a, there's a huge difference between self-publishing a book because it got rejected a thousand times and you chose not to listen to any of the editors versus self-publishing a book because the editors kept giving you feedback and you kept improving and you changed it, but ultimately you chose to keep the artistic vision that mm-hmm. you had in the first place. Mm-hmm. There's a difference <laughs> and that's not easy to do. And that's certainly not easy to do your first run around that takes Absolutely. practice to get to that point. So how do you, I mean, how do you tackle something like that? How do you, what, what specifically do you do? I mean, do you have like a, I don't know, a questionnaire or a self-reflection kind of process you go through when you're trying to listen to feedback versus well, use feedback versus I not use feedback. I have trusted beta readers who, which I highly recommend. <laughs> I don't know if you do, but um, yes, trusted beta readers yep. who will tell you the truth, first of all. 
their truth. Um, my rule is that if, if two people or more comment on the same thing in one of my books, then I will look at it. If someone, now, if my very best friend in the whole wide world who lives in Montana, shout out to Lisa, um, if she says, this really bothers me, or if my mom says, this really bothers me, I will say, why? And if the answer is, because it made me feel bad, <laughs> then I'm like, well, that was the goal. So, yay, you know, but, That's, but yeah, if, right, right. <laughs> a, if, if there's something like it drew me out of the story, if two people say something, it can be anything, really. If two people say it, then I go back and I address it. Because if, if more than one person is commenting on it, then it's drawing them out of the story. That's in general how I, how I handle that. With regard to Devil's Grace, the one that was just released, um, <clears throat> when I mm -hmm. sent it initially to the editor at Green Writers Press, um, she, she, one of her first comments was, oh my God, your prologue is unbelievable. And I said, oh my, thank you so much, right? And then she's like, now let's talk about chapter one. And I said, what about chapter one? She goes, well, the <laughs> prologue is so great chapter one's kind of boring. And I was like, you know, and it, what, what? And then she said, but chapter four isn't. So what right. if we switch them? And so initially I didn't say anything because of course, um, over time you learn that silence is actually your friend. And so it gives you time to think. Yep. And so I didn't say anything. And finally I said, well, let me look at it because that's the right answer to your editor because they, they have your best interest at heart. So let me look at it. Of so course. I did. I took a week off. I walked away and I went back and I looked at it and I thought, oh my goodness, she is so right. And so I switched them and it's a completely different book because of it. So um, I think if your editor says something, there are some things that I feel strongly about. I can't even think of any that I felt so strongly about that I absolutely had to keep it that way. But um there's stuff, there are things in Swan Song, the one for the book next year that Addie pointed out that, you know, they wouldn't, the Germans would not have said this at the time. This is just an example. You know, they wouldn't have said Ross for, a, right. for a, when they're clinking glasses, but it's supposed to be a joke. So, you know, there are some things that you have to just lay by the wayside because you had an intention. The question is, right. did your intention come through in the work? And that's a different issue. But that's my general rule of thumb is if more than two people say it um, or if I'm watching them read it and I see their eyes move back, like if they reread a section, I'll, I'll ask sometimes, not all the time, but I'll say, did something bother you in there? Oh, it's just this little thing. Well, little things are important. I need to know. Right. So um, <laughs> you're right. Or or if this, I don't know if you've had this too. Someone reads it and you say, what did you think of, you know, the end? What did you think of the end? Um, no, it was good. It was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? What do you mean? <laughs> Explain. Then you get yes, to the heart absolutely. Because the they tell you the truth. And God bless the people that tell the truth. I love it. Makes us better. Makes us better. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how does that how does that feedback routine when you're composing a piece of uh, music or I mean because that, that's obviously how can I spit this out writing is something that's like a product right so you can email that you send it to your beta readers they take a look they give you feedback but something like music in order to get the true uh, I guess the best feedback it has to be performed how does that routine shift when you're changing your your chosen artistic medium. 
Well, if it does at all, I like when I was performing, when I was performing and preparing to perform, um, you know, from the beginning, voice teachers would say, you need to, you need to record yourself. You need to record yourself. And I said what everybody else says in the beginning, which was, oh, I don't, I hate that. I don't want to listen. Well, duh. How are you going to get better if you don't, I mean, what do you do in teaching lacrosse or in teaching hockey, right? Ice hockey. You look at the films, Mm -hmm. right? Watch the tape. It's the same thing. And so now um, I will often with my students' permission, you know, I will record and then send them the recording because I want, and their heart, they're just like, oh my God, that was so bad. Well, how are you going to do it better? What can Mm -hmm. we do to make it better? It's, I could sit here and talk till I'm blue in the face, right? But so it's the same way with writing. So when I write, I usually only write, um, I can only write for two to four hours a day. It's exhausting for, I am absolutely exhausted. Plus it's so solitary that I do that in the morning. And then in the afternoon I teach. So I, in the morning, I'm very quiet and I'm very intro, like inside myself. And then in the afternoon, I'm the other part of me, which is like all the time and having fun and outgoing and (laughs) too too much energy and all that stuff. Right. But um, I will write a chapter, you know, 2,000-ish words. I'll write a chapter. That's the goal. Write a chapter a day at least. And then I will immediately reread it and fix any glaring errors. The next day when I come back, the first thing I do is reread at least one chapter from the day before to see what my opinion of it is. Mm-hmm. Over time, once I've written maybe 20 pa- chapters, I often will go back to the beginning and start rereading again to make sure that I haven't let a detail, a strand kind of float away that should have been taken care of or something like that. And of course, the beta readers do that too. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, in chapter four, you yeah. said her name was Martha, but then in chapter 12, all of a sudden it turned to Mary, you know, those kinds of little details. Um, <laughs> obviously, those are yep. you know, glaring errors, but that's how I do it. So, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I was just curious, too, because, every again, everyone has their own process. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why the podcast, what I'm trying to do here is kind of help people realize there's well, more than one way. Well, and the other thing is I just recorded, um, I recorded Devil's Grace on audio, uh, my own book. And prior to that, I recorded a friend oh, of mine's okay. book, um, uh, Mayflower Chronicles, A Tale of Two Cultures which examines the Mayflower story, uh, how it really happened (laughs) and uh, what happened really (laughs) when the natives were here. So it's a fascinating book, definitely worth the read, but I recorded her audio book at mobile mic studios here in Providence, Rhode Island. And then I recorded my book and um, I learned that reading out loud, which again, it's like, duh, but reading out loud, you don't skip over words that your eyes might skip over when you're just reading. So now I not only reread things, but I always reread them out loud. So, you know, people will wander into the kitchen or wherever I happen to be. And I'll always be just talking to myself, having a whole conversation or read, and they don't even (laughs) ask anymore. They're just, they kind of wave and keep walking. So it's so funny you say that. I, that's an exercise mm-hmm. I make my students do in classes where, you know, when we're during the editing process, when we're working and workshopping something together, I make them read it out loud mm-hmm. to each other yep. and yep. they hate me for it. But at the same time, it's like you catch those mistakes. It's like, oh, I, I wrote exactly. two thus. Yeah. Or <laughs> I got to fix that, of, you know, or yeah, all those little things. The other thing is that, right. you know, the spoken voice is the art, the art form of storytelling, 
is getting somewhat lost and podcasts are bringing it back, which make, which thrills me. But, you know, how do you create that character? I mean, it's one thing when you write it and when I'm writing it, I don't know about you, but I have a visual in my head. And so, and they have a voice. Mm -hmm. And so when I ended up recording Devil's Grace, the voices were completely clear to me. I mean, like not even a question because I had created them um, from the inside out. And so they all had their own voice. And it's super fun to be able to bring a voice to a character that you've written for so many months. So. Mm -hmm. That's fun too. You know, I, uh, one of the previous guests I had on a couple, few episodes ago um, was a writer and a podcaster and she wrote, um, she's written books, but she also wrote a narrative based Mm -hmm. podcast, you know, it's storyline. And, you know, she had other people reading the different characters and yeah. that's a whole nother process is trying to organize that many people reading and, and recording and all that stuff so i wonder how does that and, and i didn't i did not know prior to this that you also had the mm. audiobook version of devil's grace it's actually or, not or out yet right? it should be out um, um hopefully by next week but yes okay so how did you how did you approach that the actual reading out loud of different characters voice and i kind of this is a little selfish of me because i'm trying to also create a narrative podcast and i'm trying to go about different ways of approaching that different voices for different characters it gets back to um to your point about the best way to learn is to teach um you know to understand um how different voices are created um i use all the tools from my voice toolbox which is for example to be very specific there's something called i don't know if you're familiar with a vocal fry you familiar with that phrase okay so, mm, you know, the yeah. Kardashians have made it famous. So they'll, you know, like I went to the mall <laughs> and I got myself this great dress <laughs> and it was awesome. That kind of, uh, well, that is, you know, the glottal reaction to, you know, the glottis opening and closing. You can sit on your larynx. You can put right. pressure on your larynx to create kind of a Kermit the Frog kind of voice. So you can do that. So all of the things that are related to mm-hmm. the vocal mechanism, you can lift your soft palate in the back. And I am more than happy to have a conversation offline about this with you. But you can lift your soft palate and say <laughs> okay. a lot of your listeners probably won't know who Julia Child is. She was a very famous chef. And she talked like this and she was British. And she'd say, today we're cooking with butter. Mm, it's going to be scrumptious. Like that. Yeah. I so remember. I remember. This. And then for yep. men, you simply lower your voice or you shift it to one side. So in, in my friend's book, Mayflower Chronicles, William Brewster, who was the kind of lay preacher on the Mayflower, his voice in my head was down to the right. And that's the only way I can describe it. But what happened was, as I was recording, my body would take on what my voice was doing. So when I would, when I would talk like, talk like William Brewster, it was very low and down here. Say, Mary, you look very sad today. Is there something on your mind? And I would end up leaning to the right <laughs> while I was doing it because he was <laughs> to the right. Whereas Mary was all up here. She was all up here and she talked like this. William, we can't do that. The children will get upset. So And then there are just accents that you can do, Southern, Italian, British, Irish, all of those kinds of things. Those are are super fun, too. It's fascinating because that's the kind of stuff that doesn't come across in writing. I mean, like when you're writing a novel, like you can 
you know, obviously you can just tell the reader, oh, they're speaking, you know, <laughs> with an Italian accent, but that's that's not the same thing. It's not the same experience as exactly. listening to it. And I think that it adds a whole other well, element and there's to the a, story. There's a character in Devil's Grace. He, you're not sure if he's good or bad. His name is Doctor Bernard Smythe, and he's from Georgia. And um, <laughs> so he has got this fabulous kind of a locust valley clinch going on with the georgia accent and he's one of my favorites but those kinds of slow drawl and so when i was writing him literally the first time i started writing him i'm like oh he's from georgia i just so, <laughs> so i don't know whether <laughs> that is something i create or whether i i don't know but like it's interesting because the main character dr angela brennan is a cardiac surgeon in the book she was the voice I did not have. And I think it's because it was, I mean, she's not me. I'm not saying that, but I, I don't know, actually, mm -hmm. now that I think about it, I, she didn't have a voice, which is fascinating to me. All the other ones, Liz, her assistant talks like this. She's from, she's from Rhode Island where it's kind of a New York meets Boston accent. It's very, and it's very nasal. So, you know, there are all these fabulous right. characters and her father's very kind of low like this, like Angela, Angel, darling, because he's got, you know, he's, so, but it is right, right. fascinating and they were all very real. And the, even the little girls, the, it's, I don't know how, I don't know how other people do it. I can't comment on that. But to me, when I read a character, the voice mm -hmm. is in my head. I mean, do you do that when you read, not your stuff, like when you read other books, do you have the voice in your head? Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. So for me, it's hard right, to do okay. it for my own characters, but I have no problem doing it with other books, with mm. other people's characters. It's just, I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just the, the way that I approach yeah. the writing process. I don't know. It's something, it's a skill I'm definitely, I've been working on since I started kind of outlining this, mm -hmm. this narrative podcasting projects that might never <laughs> see the light of day, but we'll see. Um, I don't know. I've just, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Um, you know, I'm, I'm finishing up, not to make this about me, I'm finishing up a novel manuscript myself and i kind of you know i'm, I'm kind of, thank you i'm kind of oh, yeah. over it yeah. <laughs> you know you get to the end of the yeah, book yeah. and you're like all right yeah. i'm done with this i want to move to the next thing so that that's kind of where i'm at and i've kind of been just thinking about the execution of how i could do this so we'll definitely have to i'll have to connect with you offline kind of yeah, and, and I'm any, very serious. Uh, any about further that. ideas? I off love you. talking to anyone about any. I just love talking to people, so I'm willing to help you in any way I can. Likewise. Awesome. Okay. We'll have to connect. All right, Beth. I think this is a great spot to kind of start to wrap up. Do you want to transition to those three <gasps> rapid fire questions? Yes. All right. So, listeners, I always give kudos to guests who choose to or elect to answer these spur of the moment off the cusp. Beth has chosen to not know the questions ahead of time. It adds a different, uh, different Seriously, layer to this. I feel like, like what's behind door number one? I'm so excited. <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, don't feel like these answers have to be profound or anything. It's just kind of a way for listeners to kind of get, uh, get to know you okay. on a personal level, really. Uh, so the first question is, what are you currently reading and would you recommend it to our um, listeners? And that can be taken lightly. It could be audiobook, documentary, yeah, and it doesn't well, have to be like actually, a physical book. I am book. reading a physical book, and I, but I'm only like seven pages into it because I got sucked out of it to, to work on my book. 
Um, and <laughs> I can't even remember the name of it. It's downstairs and it's a World War II historical fiction book, though. So I can't remember. Um, mm, no. Part of the research? Well, no, no. Um, there's also a book that um, I'm not currently reading, but I want to get, and it's Children of the Holocaust, I think is the name of it. And that is definitely research. To me, it's all mm. research. I mean, literally every conversation I have, you know, you can get tidbits and ideas for anything. Oh, yeah. So honestly, okay, so what am I actually reading right now? That book downstairs, and I can't remember the name of it. So there, how's that for, you know, like, off the cuff? Sorry, not helpful. But... <laughs> Yeah, I like the raw organic. I mean, that to me, yeah. this is like real, you know, I don't want I don't want po- that's not the point well, of this podcast. Honestly, I want real. I want I, yeah, run, honestly, most of my time right now is spent um, rewriting the next book. So uh, I'm not reading as much as I would like to. So Yeah. Well, sure. You know, especially as a as a parent and a wearer of many different hats, you know, reading takes a lot of time. Um, and it's it's a it's a craft yeah, like anything and, else you have to dedicate time you know, towards. That it, is you know? an excuse for sure. Like there are some people that will listen to this, and there are some people that think if you're not constantly reading, you're not a real writer. And but you know what? I, one, I'm done with any uh, being put in any box. Um, you know, the writers who yeah. are all about the artistic integrity and the process and the. I mean, I I just <laughs> I, I am who I am, and that's it. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. I'm with you. Trust me. You're, you're talking to a teacher. My reading time has been, uh, well, sliced and, and the marketing, little, tiny the marketing pieces, so. part, you know, <laughs> trying to market yourself, even with the help of a publicist, God, I love them, but it's, it's oh, yeah. so much time, <laughs> so much time. So, you mm-hmm. know, and people are yep. saying, well, what's up next? And what are you doing? One, one podcaster who's wonderful, but said, well, what's after the next book? And I was like, uh, well, um, and actually, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I do I'm not have there ideas yet. and I wrote a chapter one, but I, I wasn't in a position to really discuss it, but I did. I said, here's some thoughts I have about ideas that I may or may not write about. So, um, yeah, anyway, but I love it. <laughs> it is what it That's is. Okay. That's right. All right. Uh, question number two, what is your favorite meal? to prepare and cook this could be for yourself for your friends for your family um and don't feel any pressure here <laughs> i've had people on the show say things like chicken nuggets and i've also had people on the show who yeah. are like pastry chefs so <laughs> well it's really whatever is, is you <laughs> um, I, my husband is an amazing chef and can create something out of nothing i look in the pantry and say yeah we should go out and then he opens the door and says what are you talking about? what do you talk we got all this so um the answer is anything he cooks is my favorite meal to cook. And I am the sous chef <laughs> and I actually am, I'm now good at it in terms of, you know, I can chop very quickly and I can listen to directions very well and I can turn mm-hmm. on ovens really well. I love to bake. So that's really fun. So in terms of baking, what I love to do is mm. I love to make chocolate chip cookies for my kids because they love my chocolate chip cookies and that makes my soul feel warm. But my husband makes really, truly, he's really amazing. He's amazing. Um, but he, he makes fish tacos that are unbelievable. They're based on a fish taco that he had when he was in San Diego. And they're so flipping good. So that would be it. And actually, this Saturday, my mother-in-law, Jackie Splain, 
has turned 80. And so we're doing a chef. The whole family is doing a Zoom chef thing. So we all buy the ingredients ahead yeah. of time and do the prep work ahead of time. And then the chef will come on and we will prepare um, mushroom, wild mushroom risotto and um, dessert is cream puffs or something. So that's going to be super fun. So, that, you know, right. yeah, it's it was that my, sounds so cool. my niece's idea. And I think it's a great idea. So that's going to be super fun. But in general, I inherited this from both my parents, really not a big fan of eating or cooking like I eat because I have to eat, but I'm not a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, Which I'm zero okay. for two, man. I feel like that's. I should have asked ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, this is you should have asked ahead of time. That's right. <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. All right. So maybe I mean this third one is probably right up your alley. But um, what's one life lesson that you want to pass on to our listeners? It could be from the conversation today, or it could be something you just live your life by. But one overarching life lesson that you want to share? Um, you're stronger than you think you are. Yeah, because I love that. Everything's relative. And one person can, you know, break a nail and be in a fit and another person can have just lost their parent and you'd never know. And so everything's relative. Every, your pain is relevant and you are entitled to it, but you're stronger than you think. That's what I would say. I love that. And that ties into the, bring this full yep. circle. And, that ties into the light. That's what the light is in there. Is all about. <laughs> It's about this woman who walks, who loses, and it's based on two real life stories, by the way. Um, and uh, yeah, mm, and it's, it's a, that. this woman loses her whole family within 24 hours <clears throat> and she's a cardiac surgeon and she's walking through this horrendous valley in her life. And she ends up being comforted by people that turn out to be people who've already passed on. So she thinks she's losing her mind. And so this woman of science goes up against the hospital where she works. People are hiding the truth of her daughter's death. And again, it's based on two real life, inspired by real life stories. So um, it's people can go to elizabethsplainauthor.com and learn more about me and about all of my books. Excellent. Thank you. That's just what I was going to ask you too. Yeah. <laughs> where can listeners find you online? So you lamed your website. Do you have any, I don't know if you're active on any social medias. Do you want to share anything else where if a listener wants to reach out, bounce ideas yeah, off you um, or check out some of your uh, work? Facebook is, is the website, the best, the best place. place. I am actor, active on Twitter and Instagram, but not as much. And Elizabeth Splain is always the best way to reach me. But ElizabethSplainAuthor.com is probably the best way to reach me. And I check that, you know, all the time and respond as, as quickly as I can. Excellent. Well, Beth, I am incredibly grateful for your time today. I thank you for coming on and sharing some of your wisdom. Um, and we'll have to connect. Um, we'll have to connect offline once Absolutely. I get going this uh, podcast. Out, it has been we'll my it absolute goes. pleasure to talk with you. You you are a person of light. I am sure of it, and I am very grateful for your time. Thank you. You too. Have a great rest of your Thanks. day. Okay, Beth. Bye. All right. Hey guys, just one more quick thing before you take off. Um, I wanted to take a second to express my sincere gratitude for your time and your attention. It's appreciated way more than you realize. 
Um, if you'd like to support our cause and what we're doing here at Betterism, there's a few ways you can do that. Um, you could share, rate, or review the show. Um, it's available wherever you get podcasts. You can join our blog and contribute some of your wisdom to our growing family. Or if you're able to, you can donate or subscribe any amount to paypal.me slash bingbang. That link is in the show notes. Um, Thanks again so much for your time, and I hope you have a great day. Well, that's it, friends. Thanks for tuning in. I hope to swing through again. If you'd like to reach out, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at medium.com slash betterism. Be better at whatever it is you're building. And remember, friends, stay learning.